and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast about old books, old philosophers, old things, sometimes new books and new thinkers, right? It is. Uh, yep. Sometimes. Maybe today. Uh, and it is populated by three gentlemen, myself, A.J. Hannenberg. I work at a classical Christian school called Veritas Academy in Austin, Texas. And I'm joined by two of my colleagues who do the same, who are also huge cheaters. So, uh, wow, Donald, yeah. just huge, the hugest. This so Donaldson, very oh, no, the no, cheater. No, no. I'm not a cheater. I just remember things. That's actually fair. I read the book. I hided the answers in my brain. He pretended to not. You pretended to be coming up with those on the spot, you big fat cheater. Just to be clear to new listeners, you're referencing last episode, correct? Yeah, I'm I'm referencing last episode. So last episode, I was really impressed with how they had remembered or just sort of came up with all the answers that Plato had in the Republic. (laughs) Turns out that uh, Magby had the Wikipedia article open the whole time and... Graham over here was just remembering from when he read it, which I guess is a little more legitimate, but wow, not legitimate okay. when you don't make that clear. It's not cheating, it's learning. It's like Wait, I, hid the, I hid the answers in my mind. Okay. And then hid them from your friends. That's oh, deceit. Mm, okay. All right. Anyway, Sorry. I am the only pure, yes. righteous as yes. the pure driven snow. That's what we always say. Yes. And, uh, and so today we'll be hearing uh, what, what you're hearing from Graham. Uh, good luck believing it. So there you go. <laughs> Speaking about hiding answers in your mind. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so today we are, I'm pulling a Magby and <laughs> I don't, I'm talking about a book. We always... <laughs> I talked AJ about a book literally about a book. last yeah, episode. He just talked about a book. That's true. All right, so... Um, Is it because you're doing a book review, I'm doing which a, I've never done, just to be very clear? Uh, okay, you're right. Okay. Um, no, we are, we're talking about a new book that's out. We talked uh, by an author and classical educator named Joshua Gibbs. We talked about... He's one of the only... Con- Is he one of the only contemporary authors that we've... No, you've talked about... Um, um, I did a book on Acedia that was somewhat contemporary. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We've done a lot of contemporary art. Oh, for James sure. Shaw, yeah, James Shaw. Yeah. James Shaw. Yeah. 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 So um, we uh, reviewed and talked, not reviewed, I don't know, we reviewed it like Discuss. Like our opinions matter. Um, we <laughs> wow. talked about uh, Joshua Gibbs' first book called How to Be Unlucky. How to Be Unlucky. And that one is, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast, but it was a book about um, um, virtue, and uh, Josh, Joshua Gibbs said he was embarrassingly old when he first heard a full-throated defense of why to live a virtuous life. Yeah. And um, he has a most recent book that just came out, and it's called Something They Will Not Forget. And it's about how, it, it's a lot more, it's a more of a practical book about classroom, I mean, practical, sort of a silly way to phrase it, but it is a book that is more specific to classroom, classical Christian education, whereas the first book can be read, it's not necessarily about, um, you don't need to be a classical educator, uh, um, this book is a little bit more finely tuned to the classical classroom. The, the, whatever the, so the title is something they will not forget. And then the, whatever the subtitle thing is called a handbook for classical yeah, teachers. There you You're go. Very upfront with that. So just to be really, uh, so Joshua Gibbs, he is a teacher at our namesake school in Richmond, Virginia, Veritas school, the Veritas school in Richmond, yeah. Virginia that has no affiliation except that when all the v- classical schools were being started 20 years ago, we all chose. there was a small pool of names that we could have. Sure. There we go. Veritas, Valor, Veritas. Valor, um, um, and then pick your favorite classical people. Uh-huh. There's a Wilberforce, which is a oh. different one. Oh, that's a good one. There's Chesterton schools, which are which right. lean more Catholic. There are there's an Ambrose, mm. uh, whatever. And then, but then just like random virtues. There's no Temperance school, as far <laughs> what I've found. <laughs> or, temperance. Uh, that doesn't. Hey, hey, yeah. easy, yeah, easy. Yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa, don't whoa. run, yeah. but yeah. jog. Yeah, <laughs> walk on the light walk. Yeah. Walk on the halls. Yeah. Um, and um, so anyway, so he is a teacher at a school at Richmond, Virginia called um, Veritas. Veritas 
school, and he uh, um, has written this book about solving a particular problem that we, as I think all educators, educators face. Um, He presented one of his solutions two or I think even three years ago at. Uh, the Society of Classical Learning. He talked about a specific practice that he had just done, I think, for one year. And uh, I loved it, and I had implemented it. And it must have been three years ago because I do it in 10th grade, and our graduating seniors were the first year where I did that. So uh, it was at least two years ago. So anyway, we'll talk about that. And um, But he had a problem that, that, that all educators face, and that is that embarrassing question of asking your kids that, like so we teach seniors you teach seniors and ninth graders i teach seniors and 10th graders and hannenberg if you asked your seniors what do you remember from ninth grade or in josh's uh, case he took uh, uh kids who were in his class and they were doing a medieval literature humanities course and they went to the cloisters in new york city and the tour guide said so uh when did the middle ages start and everybody and his students sat there dumbfounded. And um, Mr. Mr. Gibbs, the teacher who had been pouring all of this knowledge into his students, uh, was embarrassed and uh, dismayed that his students couldn't rattle off even the basic the basic facts about the Middle Ages. This is a this is the fear that all teachers have. But it's but I mean it's not just the fear of teachers. Can, uh, do you remember what you learned in tenth grade English? Can you remember what grade? books you read in tenth grade English? I don't even remember my 10th grade. Uh, I don't even remember my 10th Cartwright. grade English teacher. I remember I Ash Wednesday. I don't remember. Maybe. Oh, you really? You read Elliot in? No, I oh. just remember she put ash on her forehead. Oh, never mind. Sorry. I thought you meant the poem. Um, no, couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell grade. you. Yeah, no. I can't tell you. I can more do ninth grade. I remember Odyssey and Elliot from ninth grade. Oh, you really? Uh-huh. I remember that. I remember 11th grade. Was that Scarlet Letter? I remember that was like American Lit. Mm-hmm. So they were like certain books I kind of remember reading, but no, by and large, I don't remember any of that. I I can't even remember the classroom of 10th grade. Mm-hmm. I remember it was in Saskatoon. I don't I don't know. I can't remember it at all. I think maybe Merchant of Venice. I remember very little. So anyway, yeah. so this is a problem, right? Um, and so this is a problem that everybody suffers from is, so how do you teach things that are worth remembering? And um, essentially this book, so then, yes, so um, um, so Josh comes to this, jo- I don't know, I feel like a first name basis is Gibbs? too familiar, Mr. Okay, Gibbs. Mr. Gibbs, yeah. Um, uh, comes to the, the, um, the realization that things that are remembered are repeated. That we just rem- remember things through repetition. And, um, and so then teachers have a tremendous power to be able to uh, um, shape the things that students remember. And we, by and large, misuse that power um, because we, uh, we misuse that power with assessments, either because we're scared or because um, um, doing it the other way is difficult. And so this was his sort of hard-won lessons of... Um, Sorry, I'm just wondering if I just unplugged the podcast. These are his hard-won <laughs> lessons that he has learned uh, from educating and to never have that or to have that to avoid that possibility of students just standing there dumbfounded when they are asked sort of basic questions about something like the Middle Ages. So um, uh, it's broken in. So the, yeah, the book is is uh, um, the first chapter is that sort of problem, that problem of retention. 
um, and um, that students uh, uh, don't retain these sorts of things um, or the things that we, we get them to, um, to retain maybe aren't, don't really matter. We probably all took tests where the first question was like, where was Shakespeare born or what year was Shakespeare born in? Uh, because those are easy things to grade. Um, and But those are things that you never memorize. So um, uh, we are English teachers. If I was teaching a new book on like Othello, I would be looking up all sorts of things. I was not trained when I read Othello to have memorized minute points about Othello. Like um, to be able to see from... Um, just to like read a passage and be able to identify, oh, that's Iago speaking or that's Othello speaking. Um, or to like have memorized when Shakespeare was alive. Like that, those, if I'm actually going to be teaching this book, those are less, those, those are things that, you know, you don't really need to memorize. You just sort of maybe kind of memorize things because you teach it over and over and over again. So, uh, even because teachers look things up, um, uh, why are we, why do we uh, uh, teach our students or why do we test our students um, for things that are easily look upable? And he says, uh, so he, this was sort of his revelation that he had. It was that he was giving these types of assessments where um, you were giving what were sort of quote unquote more objective styles of answer, uh, questions with objective answers. Um, and he one day had the realization that, wait a minute. Um, well, let me just read the passage here. He said, Young teachers are intimidated to ask questions on tests and quizzes, which aim at moral formation. However, because such questions are thought subjective, and students often complain they cannot study for such tests. Most students believe that in what year was the comedy, Divine Comedy, finished, is an objective question because liberal, conservative, Christian, and atheist would all agree that the answer is 1321. But most students are wrong. The answer is, sub uh, the answer is objective. The question is not. So it's not, a subjective, it's not an objective question. It's an objective answer. When the question, in what year was the comedy finished, appears on a literature exam, it has been subjectively chosen by the teacher 1321 must be the answer to the question, but the teacher is under no obligation to ask such a question. So this is sort of one of the realizations that was foundational to his, his uh, change in the way that he assesses or just even approaches um, what students produce in the classroom. That there is no such thing as an objective question. You can ask you can ask questions that have objective answers, um, but there is a certain subjectivity that has gone into into asking that question. And the subjectivity is, I as an English teacher um, value the student knowing and retaining the year that the book was that the book was written. That this is the important takeaway that I test the student on. When in reality, I would look that up. You would look that up. We would all look that up. We don't. Right. There, there's nothing valuable about memorizing 1321 as the date that the thing was published until Google burns. <laughs> until Google burns to the ground. That's sure, right. Yeah. And, and even then, like, there's still encyclopedias. There's intros, right? and these, like, these books have introductions to them. Yeah. And so, and so he says that he eventually learns all these dates, but he learns them because he teaches the book because year he teaches in, year the, out. exactly year not, in and year out. Not because mm -hmm. it's actually necessary. Like until he, I forget how many years he's been teaching Dante. But his first few years, he didn't know it. And then he just learned it from repetition. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't, it does not improve his reading of Dante to know that 1321 mm -hmm. is the year it's written. So he, so the, he sort of sets up the, the, some of the problems that schools have, have. And the, and the, the types
types of questions asked is one of them. We, we think that uh, we are being fair by asking questions that have objective answers, but really we are giving students uh, hoops to jump through that have no, you know, have no real use outside of just getting the grade for the class, right? Like there's no use that a student knows that it's 1321. And he'll give examples of what he thinks are useful questions, a useful test later on. The other thing that he sort of sets his aim on um, is uh, rubrics for writing. And he has a very funny passage, or at least it's funny if you work in a classical school, I'm going to read it too, because we definitely have had these things. The use of a rubric will not help the teacher. Although rubrics offer the illusion of an objective evaluation, in the end, a fallible and opinionated human being must decide whether young Brooklyn's essay... I probably should change the name. We have a Brooklyn at our school. We, just to be clear, that's, just to be that, two, that's this what the is, book says. This is what the yes. book says. Okay. Brookie, we're not talking about you. Okay. Um, I guess now we are, she listens but, okay. to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Although, hey, you're pretty great. Yeah, Brooklyn, if you do. Yeah. You're, a good, you're a good kid. Yeah. Um, um, uh, decide whether a young student's essay, quote, mostly failed or completely failed to make a coherent argument. These are objective expressions which might appear on a rubric. Every classical school in the country has a rubric for grading essays, which was crafted by some former employee, so which is true. Yeah. Um, we still use some variation of Alison Maines' rubrics, or maybe not anymore. Um, I craft my own. Yes, Thank there you very go. much. That rubric has been buried under a mountain of bureaucracy and left unconsulted for years. Rubrics are not like doorstops or can openers. They are hard to use, ineffective, and inconvenient. I have several times fielded angry phone calls from fathers who's insist who insisted that they read their daughter's essay on Boethius and, quote, thought it pretty good, <laughs> but also insisted the low grade young Piper received was not objectively supported by a pre-established and minutely explained set of criteria. A rookie teacher need only have one such argument with a parent before going back to, in what year did Dante finish the comedy? And this is insightful. So this is, this is kind of to the, is the crux of the matter, is that when you are talking about, if you have education as, form, as, as moral training and wanting to have, uh, to hear students' opinions, no, not wanting to hear students' opinions, wanting to form um, uh, uh, right opinions and then also have students think about um, books um, morally or think about them in terms of how they grow in their own personal virtue, um, you, the teacher now ends up becoming a very important locus. So no longer is the teacher just a dispenser of the quit the tests that have objective answers. The teacher is now sort of the subjective um, um, character through which the students are, are sort of ascribed a passing or a failing uh, capacities in, in talking about moral things. Oh, man, it's so hard to talk about without using sort of giving the examples that well, he gives. Do you want to the, talk about? Well, do you want to talk about your new approach to grading this year? Yeah, and I mean, so it, and it's borrowed. It's a version borrowed from his from his uh, one of his rubrics. And so, like, yes, if you have a mind, if you have a rubric where you have every single minutely detailed. Um, uh, 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 way that a student could go right or could go wrong, and then every sentence or every argument needs to somehow fit into that rubric, um, it eventually sort of engenders a couple of weird things. Eventually, the students get used to the rubric and start writing papers that, that like, match the rubric. Match the rubric. But, if you, but if you didn't have the rubric and you just read this as a regular piece off the shelf, you would be like, this, this sounds bizarre, and this is sort of formulaic, and there's... It seems like it's writing to some standard that is that I don't really 
if you're not initiated into the rubric, then you're reading this thing and it sounds sort of it sounds sort of robotic. So, but it's a lot. But it's hard just to say as a teacher, or it's it's hard to um, to justify to other people saying, "I know good writing when I see it, and I will tell you if this is good or this is bad, and I will give you the specific reasons why." I think a lot of people don't trust a teacher to say that, mm. um, and it's there, and you know, it, it flies in the face of standardization across grades, across schools, across how do you write for the, you know SATs and standardization. So. Um, our modern education bent has bent towards more fitting into rubrics as opposed to um, to sort of having setting up teachers as being basically like hiring teachers whose opinions matter um, it would be the the opposite end of this. Um, Do you want to read that section? Go so for it. On the next page. So you read page 12. This mm. is page 13. A good school should thus aim to hire teachers whose opinions matter. Teachers who have something on the line when they speak and who only speak on matters about which they have a growing reputation. The good teacher also invests his time outside of class on matters which will help his students take him more seriously. This is, this, you can see my sticky system. Mm-hmm. This is my only one. Anyway, this was like a actually make sure to talk about this. The good teacher is morally obligated to like better movies than his students, listen to better music, and read better books. He laughs at all attempts to redeem and reclaim video games for Jesus Christ. The good teacher aims to be a great sage of subjectivity, not a master of objectivity. Yes. So the teacher ends up needing to be the standard through which the students are measured against and are trying to replicate and are trying to mimic. So if we go back to the last podcast that I did about mimesis, about copying, not only are we copying ideas, but when you are learning something, you're also copying people. Um, You know, watch the way Tiger Woods swings a club and try to do that. Watch the way this guy throws a football. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this is why, and I know AJ does this in his ninth grade class, you know, giving good pieces of literature for students to read and then try to emulate and and imitate. Mm -hmm. Um, Try to write like C.S. Lewis. Try to write like G.K. Chesterton. Um, so the teacher needs to be, uh, and then the teacher needs to be able to um, call out, call it out when you know, call a spade a spade and say that this isn't good enough. So yeah, so maybe the the system you're talking about is one that I borrowed, I took from this book, inspired from this book, and then um, um, put in basically that there are sort of essentially four kinds of grades w- with a failure. Um, uh, the most basic of grades is some sort of middle B. And, and the way that I talk about it is I use an analogy of hamburgers. Like if you're going to a restaurant and you're getting a hamburger, um, you, you have an idea of what a pretty good hamburger is. Right. And if you go to a hamburger and you get a common sense hamburger, you get meat, you get patty, you get toppings. And at the end of it, you're like, yeah, good burger. That's you may not go back, but uh, it did exactly what you thought a burger would do. It was the common sense basic default hamburger. Meat, cheese, passable. toppings. It was passable. It was good. It was. Uh, it, it didn't offend the palate. Um, and that would be like the middle B hamburger. And I tell my students that that is like default writing. When you have, you know, the first thing that pops into your mind and you write down the first thing if you're given a prompt. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever the first thing is and you kind of write it down, and it, maybe it has a spelling mistake or two, but I didn't really, it wasn't big enough that I really noticed it. You know, that's, that's this kind of hamburger. Then there's the other kind of hamburger that has some craft and some care and consideration. Instead of like cheddar, maybe you put gray air cheese on it. Instead of lettuce, maybe you put cabbage, with, which works really well with the gray what is air. That? Is, that, is that oregano? It's a oregano. <laughs> maybe you've got like caramelized onions. Yeah. Maybe you've got, you know, in a balsamic. You've got like an idea as to what a better hamburger could be, and you are attempting to make that better hamburger. Um, and 
And if there's like that care and that craft and it's like something interesting is going on, that is a that is a, a top tier hamburger. If you've taken out things that you think don't need to be in a hamburger for, you know, like hmm. basically you've had an opinion as to what good hamburger should be, then that should be a, that is a better hamburger than your default hamburger. Hmm. If you can do writing like that, then you're talking that is in the mid A's. Um, the hundred percent would be that it is writing that is, is, um, it is gourmet. It is so far beyond 10th grade mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, it is, it is, uh, it is its own example of excellence. You can't really mm-hmm. like give a rubric to write excellent because being excellent is so individualized, right? Like think about mm-hmm. the people who are excellent in things. They all have their own way of doing that thing. They understand the thing itself. They understand what a hamburger is. And then they all have their own unique individual take on how that could be amazing. Sure. Right? So, and if you give them a rubric, they'll just try to copy someone else's unique creation. So like if you, Austin's got great food and we have a really great restaurant that just opened that is, um, have you been to Loro yet? No. Been to Loro? No. You know Loro? No. So it's, it's mixing. Is it like Zorro except? <laughs> Crazy? Local? No. Um, No, it's mixing like like sort of Asian street food and Texas barbecue together into into this sort of like Asian street barbecue. I've been here. Yes. You've been to It's very good. It's very good. You know, but they're doing their own unique thing. And then at this point, you're like, this is this is a unique creation that is that is they've understand Asian street food. They've understand Texas barbecue. And then they're putting it together into a into something that is wonderfully excellent well that's interesting so laura would be a bad hamburger though does that make like no, but i mean but not really yeah. because they're, they're like they've taken the they've taken the hamburger and then they're doing something completely oh, i like that different okay. and unique with it a I, bad hamburger I, was say, I only asked that because you your failing category anyway well there's a failing category there's a substandard category and it's it's a hamburger but the patty's too big the patty's too small the green, the meat the bun it's is frozen greasy. in the middle it's frozen in the middle like why is the patty square it's you've, <laughs> Wendy's. you've you've given a hamburger but it's like it is so obviously made with disdain and slapped together and then like the person who cares nothing about the hamburger can still say well you ordered a hamburger and this is technically a hamburger, hamburger right? that to me is a mid c mm-hmm. that's like like um they're, you know, they're just, uh, yes, fine, congratulations, you wrote a paragraph. Technically, they wrote a paper. Technically, they wrote a paper. <laughs> and they weren't completely off base, and, and it wasn't, and didn't have enough errors that it, you know, wasn't cogent or whatever. Fine, it's a hamburger. But it's disappointing, and, you know, um, and then the failure would be, I ordered a hamburger, and you gave me salad. Or I ordered a hamburger, and you gave me something completely, completely mm-hmm. other. Um, and, uh, yeah. Instead of oregano, you're like, is this sand? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Or, or it's, uh, there's so many, yeah, you just, yeah. So anyway, so that's like, uh, that is completely stealing, not Squash stealing. instead of tomato and yeah, it's like just, ground chicken just, mixed with turkey. Yeah. And it's not a hamburger at all. Have you um, had assignments to test out the system so far? Um, not, not yet. No, not yet. Okay. So this, we'll see how this goes. Um, I've done variations of this, but have sort of been working on tuning it to be what this is now. And then this book also, I mean, I think one of the points of Gibbs's book is that it is to give freedom to the teachers to think differently about the assessments that we were all raised on. Um, Because we have a tremendous amount of freedom to incentivize whatever we want in the classroom, Mm -hmm. right? This is what tests do. This is what assignments do. We, we, we incentivize whatever we want. So it does no good for a student to stand up in the beginning of class and be like, what I care about in this English class is to cultivate virtue, but then to completely set up my class, which cultivates 
grades mm-hmm. or achievement or um, or you know getting some sort or, or giving them a different standard, incentivizing a different standard than virtue. Right. How do we incentivize the cultivation of character by using in English class the texts or by using history, the examples in history? Um, this book mainly deals with the humanities courses. And um, thinking about science and math is a really interesting thing. So he gives um, sort of um, three, um, well, sort of mainly two big categories for doing this. One is the types of tests that he asks the students to write on, these types of formative final, or sort of the types of final assessments. And then the other thing is to get over that um the idea, the memorizing of something, and he starts each class with a catechism, and um, and he, so the, the the rationale for the catechism is that, you know, if you want your student to be able to, um, you know, speak like Abraham Lincoln outside the class, I think is the example he gives. If you want the student to be able to speak like Lincoln outside the class, you need to practice speaking Lincoln inside the class over right. and over and over. Um, at least when I was in school, we were sort of presented with material. You go over it once. You, the teacher, sort of gave you a grade and pronounced you master of the material. Congratulations, you got an A on your tenth grade Shakespeare essay. Mm-hmm. You have, you got it. You mastered Shakespeare. Let's move on to the next harder thing. Um, and, but uh, uh, instead, by by having the students repeat things over and over and over. They memorize it. They remember it. And he gives a pretty long and good, which I won't get into, um, justification for why that this is a not only a humanizing thing, a worthwhile thing, and then brings kind of dignity and he says uh, a sort of an air of holiness to a classroom. So um, he also has this interesting observation that the first five minutes of class is always wasted. And yeah. So to put this catechism in place is to use that time for something useful. Yeah. So his catechism that he has is like a eight. Seven. To seven, seven to eight minutes long, spe- a thing that everybody in the class has either written down or everybody in the class repeats. And in it is all of the big either passages or some of the big questions or some of uh, the, the, the big is- things that he wants the students to wrestle with and think about over and over and over. So that by the end of the year, when you're asking them to talk about free will, for example, you're not just getting the same essay over and over of everybody's first impressions or their first pass on free will. They've had a whole year where they've been saying some passage about free will and um, have basically had the benefit of having prolonged contemplation on a specific thing. So he's got a a catechism that, depending on the class, um, gives the uh, uh, sort of all of the big the big points of the things that he wants to talk about in class. So this was the thing that he mentioned sort of two or three years ago at the Society for Classical Learning, and I implemented it that next year, and I've done it now for, this is my third year doing it. Do you do one too, Annenberg? I do not do a catechism. I open class with quote response. So I have a, it sounds lame, but I put quotes from everything except the book that they're reading, mm-hmm. and hopefully not books that they'll read in the future. Maybe ones that they, they have read but have forgotten pieces, like Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. And they sit and they write, and they write until I stop them, and then we have a quick discussion, and we're done. Like it's it's just a way for me to sort of open up the world to them a little mm-hmm. bit. I've considered the catechism, and you guys are saying a lot of really interesting stuff over here. I'm I'm like I'm kind of into it, so we're we're gonna see where it goes. Okay. I don't right. know I don't know how I feel about the catechism yet. Um, 
I put so the the whole point of this is to put very difficult things in the catechism, and he actually gives an example of two catechisms for various classes that he's taught, and um, he's got questions that repeat for every, for all these classes. But he gives he gives very you know his catechisms are long passages of scripture. Um, well, I'll give you an example. So here's question number two. What did Boethius teach about the good life? So there's the question, and the answer is this. No man is rich who shakes and groans, convinced that he needs more. No man is so completely happy that something, somewhere, does not clash with his condition. Remember, too, that all the most happy men are oversensitive. They have never experienced adversity, and so, unless everything obeys their slightest whim, they are prostrated by every minor upset. So nothing is miserable except when you think it's so, and vice versa. All luck is good luck to the man who bears it with equanimity. The more varied your possessions, the more help you need to protect them. And the old saying is proved correct. He who hath much wants much. Decide to lead a life of pleasure, and there will be no one who will not reject you with scorn as the slave of that most worthless and brutal master, the human body. So, saying that every day, it is a dense passage. And even me just reading it for the first time, I mean, there's maybe two or three things that you pick out in there, and you know there's tons of stuff that if you just listened to it for the first time, you didn't, you didn't pick up on. You say that every other day, whenever your class is. By the end of the year, you've had a relationship with that passage unlike than when you just read one book once. Does that make sense? So I've had this with my students, and then I, um, and so they have these passages of things that they are saying all day, or every class that we have, and um, and uh, they mem- they remember it. So for example, I had an example, uh, an uh, interaction this year with a senior. So I don't do the catechism in the senior class because I co-teach that class with other people, and some of those other teachers are not so much on board with the idea of catechism. Um, Maybe someone who's on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Is so uh, is it you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, um, I'm the newest. But English I teacher. had one student, and we were talking about crime punishment and Raskolnikov, and we were talking about um, something. You know, just what was wrong. He had. A, we were saying that he was using his reason, and his reason was not being tempered by his emotions, or his reason was not being tempered by some sort of like moral moral stance. And she said, "Oh." Um, the soul is divided into three parts, and she started quoting the catechism. That's funny. And she didn't. She wasn't necessarily. She just quoted the catechism, and she didn't just by quoting the catechism. It's not like the catechism had the answer. She just quoted the the soul is divided into three parts. The first is the rational soul, which commands. The second is the spirited soul, which acts, and the third is the appetitive soul, which obeys. Is what she quoted. And then I said, "Okay, why did you draw that connection? Because what you just said doesn't perfectly connect. I want to know what your thought is." But and she gave an answer of to why, what was wrong with Raskolnikov's soul from something that she had remembered in 10th grade. And because she had said it over and over and over again, and now all of a sudden she had that click where it went from this thing from two years ago to now being a tool that opened up this story now. And I could have taught Platonic soul again to them. And they'd be like, oh, I remember this. And mm-hmm. then use it as an example. But she did it. And right. I didn't have to, even though... I was planning on it, um, which was even great, even better. So then, yeah, the idea being that when you sort of, you're not only remembering these maybe hermeneutical tools like the Platonic soul, but you're also remembering um, dense, beautiful passages that are worth memorizing them of themselves. So we've got this long passage of Milton talking about that the life of faith 
um, the life of faith mixed with knowledge is carrying the Garden of Eden inside of you. This is this is sort of this passage of Milton. And uh, it's really hard to say, and, stu- and we're still at the stage of the school year where the students are fumbling with their words and they're having a hard time saying it. But by the end of the year, um, I can now ask them questions about that passage. Um, and they and the answers that I get for them have a level of relationship with the passage that is far different than if I just got their first opinions on giving them a passage. Um, and even so that I could probably ask them, I could probably use that passage and ask them a question about each and every individual character from all the different books. So I could talk about Romeo in light of this passage with Milton. I could talk about Adam in light of this passage of Milton, who's it's being spoken about. I could talk about Frankenstein. I could talk about, you know, uh, John in, in, in Brave New World. I could talk about uh, Sir Gawain and the, uh, in The Green Knights. And then they would all, this passage, you know, that they've, they've been saying and have it memorized in their, in their minds, uh, they just have a different level, a different relationship with it. Students come and they'll say, um, the preacher was preaching on something and he said the phrase, what is the chief end of man? And I mumbled under my breath, the chief, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm-hmm. But the pastor didn't say that. The pastor said the chief end of man is something different. And I spent the whole sermon thinking about whether he was right or wrong. Interesting. I was like, this is great. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Turns out you were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, take that, uh, you know, Aqu- no, uh, uh, Augustine. Isn't the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy forever? It's the Heidel. Isn't that the... It's Heidelberg Catechism? But aren't they, anyway, whatever. That's John Wick. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> um, anyway, so then um, uh, the catechism... Westminster, sorry, Westminster, what, what you put, all of you yelling into your radio right now. Sorry. What you put into the catechism gives the students the opportunity to have a seventh, eighth, ninth impression on it as opposed to just their first impression. Because many of the things the students do in their life are first impressions move on, first impressions move on, first impressions move on. Right. Um, and so you can choose to make the students do this thing that takes five to seven minutes at the beginning of the class. By the time they're done, they don't want to talk anymore, which is a bonus. Um, <laughs> They've gotten it out of their system. They've gotten it out of their system. <laughs> and they just want to sit down and be quiet and yeah. stare at you. And then you can also, and he, he also advocates that this is a good thing to put, this is where you can put your names and dates mm-hmm. if the names and dates are important for orienting the student to things in the class that you need to orient them to. Right. Well, because as a part of his catechism, he goes through a time. So if he covers medieval lit, he's covering when does that period begin, when mm-hmm. does that period end. Mm-hmm. So to kind of orient the student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he's also got a section where he says that this this uh, uh, at least opens up to the student the idea that there is set things in history that we need, that judge us, yeah. that we need to come under. Um, whereas if you just, if you were just sort of like, if the teacher's just sort of saying, here's a beautiful thing, what's your reaction to it? And the student's like, I think it's good. And they were like, good job. Here's a beautiful thing. What's your reaction to it? I don't like it. Be like, oh, okay. Here's a beautiful thing. What's your reaction to it? If you do that over and over and over, what it eventually communicates to the student is like my taste matters more than anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, Here's an interesting idea about returning. So you read a book ninth grade year and then come back to it senior year. So read, reading a book a second time, yeah, I, I find that idea interesting. You all teach twelfth grade English. I don't know if you find that a compelling. idea. I mean, I, I, the idea is very interesting. We we bandied about the idea. Um, I know that a lot of students who go off and do great book style we'll ha- classes end up reading again uh, Homer mm-hmm. in first year undergrad that they read in first year ninth grade, 
and they come back and they say two things. Like one, it was easy because I knew it already, and that's you know not what you want. I mean, that's fine. Sure. And then two is you know we there by reading it again, you realize that there's so much more. Or they say things like, "I wish I read it in ninth grade," right. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Bummer. Oh, yeah. No. Exactly. Um, so yeah, he he does make. Um, um, some uh, a claim saying that like it would be valuable to return to texts that you studied in yeah. under in earlier years as a senior yeah. uh, and look at it again um, and then I think that's there's something very appealing about that um, I think there's also something very interesting about them getting the Iliad taught by AJ and then getting the Iliad taught hmm. by me and then just seeing different takes, not different takes, but just seeing, like when AJ t- teaches the Iliad, the Odyssey, he naturally brings to it the ways that the book has affected him and uh, that he's changed behavior or thought about life based on these books. Mm-hmm. And I would do the same, but it would be my own versions of them. Sure. And then the student says to themselves, oh crap, well, apparently this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. Um, and, and that's sort of the level of engagement. That's the level of, of formation that you want in the student as opposed to what year was was the Divine Comedy written. Sure. And you can pass that test. And, and similarly, for our senior thesis, so mm-hmm. all seniors will write a, a speech where they're trying to persuade, they're trying to argue for some proposal. Mm-hmm. That thesis is graded by five different people. And so to mm-hmm. that point earlier about the rubric eventually graded by or the paper graded by an infallible and opinionated person it's a helpful lesson to learn that a, a, a message that resonates really highly with aj may not matter as much to me mm-hmm. does that make sense like yeah it, yeah and that's a lesson that is important to learn and this is frustrating to the student when the student is under the impression that there is an there objective five, grade objective. there are yeah. there are there are um, objective grades right. to these assignments and so uh, gibbs in the book makes a, uh, a lot of distinction he says no every human like everything is subjective especially when you're assessing somebody but they're not arbitrary mm. um that like if you if, if hannenberg gives an a he's not arbitrarily giving an a he's subjectively giving an a and so then, the, then immediately the thing is like, whoa, whoa, what kind of person is Hannenberg? And that's the right question to ask. Mm-hmm. What kind of teacher is Hannenberg? If his opinion uh, on what an A is it a good? Is it an opinion that is that if the t- if the student works to impress AJ, does that set up the student to be impressive in the world? Sure. So if AJ's got low crappy standards and he's like, congratulations, you learned you you could hit Control P on on a document whatever. on whatever you just like squirted out on the keyboard, and that's your that's your high grade, um, you know, student's going to graduate or student's going to leave his class with an A, but student is is trucking for fit, you know, is going to he's not going to be an effective person in the world, right? Um, and I think there's just a, a growing understanding and a little bit of a fear that. Teachers are passing the buck from grade to grade and then from school to school. And then we're sort of like, oh, well, they'll figure it out in college and colleges where they'll become colleges where they will become humans. Mm-hmm. And then colleges are like, that's not our job. You're adults. You're, 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 you're legally adult. Our job is not to tell you what to do. And then the student has never had any kind of um, or any sort of formation that the student has have into adult has been in spite of school, not in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's been in the extracurriculars, in the sports, in the in in um in drama and in in the things and the classroom has just been hoop jumping or um compliance and, and a, a great sort of um game of compliance i personally have a tremendous amount of um sympathy with students who 
not so much here because we're we're wanting we're working to do this differently, but students who have talked about their experiences at other schools and maybe their experience here as well of that they don't have a taste for the game of compliance, hmm. like like just playing, like figuring out how to get really good grades. Usually when you look at that sort of student, a lot of people think, oh, that kid's just unmotivated. Hmm. But a lot of the times the kid actually has a much higher view of what education should be hmm. and they realize what it should actually be doing and the fact that it's not happening here and they don't want, and, and then this is usually what's behind the quote, waste of time. Mm -hmm because it's just a game of, of, of compliance to a, to a system as opposed to they actually see themselves growing and changing. Sure. There's also, there are those other students that are just lazy. Sure. Um, I was going to say, because the other side of that is a bunch of kids try and play Minecraft, you know. Exactly. Yeah, so, and but there, every once in a while, there are students that kind of can see the modern education game for what it is yep. and say, like, this is kind of stupid. I don't, right. uh, why, there's, there's so many different ways to be, or there's, like, this isn't, this isn't making me a good man. Mm -hmm. um, now, we're, like I said at, at Veritas, we're, we're trying to we're trying to change that. Where, if you know, I've talked about this before in the podcast. My little um, when I drive home and I think about school, I, th I sometimes have the game to myself. If modern life in college disappeared, um, what would we keep as practices in the classroom, and what would we get rid of? Um, and using that as the rubric of. Of what to keep? By modern life, or I mean, if, if every student was, you know, if, if universal basic income exists, no, I'm just sure. kidding. I mean, sure. if, if students were set up for, for, for material success, but, um, and I mean, let's be honest, like, we're private school. A lot of them are going to be, are pretty much going to be set up for some level of subsistence. Like, they're going to, they're gonna, not going to starve to death. Right. Uh, unless some catastrophic things happen. Sure. So, um, then, like what would we what would we shed as if if we weren't trying to play that game what would we shed and what would we keep um anyway that's a different question altogether but it's uh it's, ask, I, I think I, it's one that every teacher should ask themselves yeah can i ask a maybe i think related but yeah a somewhat related question i'm i wonder with this focus on catechism are we boiling the class down too much like to say do you oversimplify 10th grade English to say, here's the seven minutes you need to know. And this is everything you're going to get out of the class. Like, so is this mm -hmm. the problem with math and science where math, you actually, you actually can't boil it down to seven minutes. Yeah. You actually need to know every unit you learn so that you can build on it. The next class, the catechism needs seven to be minutes. a little bit opaque to ignite a sense of curiosity. And I'll tell, I'll explain that in a second. Cause Hamburger was going to say something. Well, I was going to say, I was thinking the same thing. Like yep. my question, you said, you know, what does Boethius teach us and mm -hmm. pulled out a few things. He does a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> Right, and he teaches a ton. Like right. those were some of the lessons. No, what does Boethius teach about the good life? So I mean, like okay. specifically about this notion of good life. He teaches a but, lot but about G the good life. Gibbs had to pick a very specific section. Does that make sense? Well, the thing is, this is not a specific section. This is page twenty-six, page thirty, page thirty-one, uh -huh. page thirty-five, page sixty. So but, he's 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 stitched together a bunch of different conclusions. But, but my, I asked myself, what does what does the Iliad teach? Mm -hmm. And no, 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 no. You'd have to be even more specific. Be more specific. Yeah. So if you what were to the Iliad teach, teach about, about wrath, about wrath or heroism or like pick your thing that. Yeah. Okay. I but could, I could maybe ask, see going that far. You ask your students that question. What is the, what is the theme of wrath in the Iliad? They're supposed to be doing that. Right. Yeah. I, I almost felt like my answer is that some stories are larger than a, a single lesson. Right. Wait, and oh, for I think sure. the Iliad yes. is one of those. Like but, it's not, it's not a single theme in that book. So the catechism is not exhaustive, but what the catechism is supposed to be is supposed to give 
um, hard-won conclusions that the students wouldn't naturally get on their first pass. So, for example, uh, in his catechism, he asks, um, this is the one that, Thomas, you were talking about. What is, what, what is the human, what is the, what is the... The one about... What, is it, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? What's the answer he gives? The virtues are faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, temperance. So if a student is, is saying, the person is asking, what does it mean to be human? And they respond with the virtues are faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, temperance. There's an implied, there's a, there's a, there, the student would be nat- the naturally curious person, or even if they're not naturally curious, th- there's going to be a, huh, wait, you didn't tell me what it meant to be human. You just listed off the virtues. Right. And then there's a fill in the gap kind of thing that has to happen there. So yes, the catechism is subjective. The catechism has a has a take. The yes. catechism is hot takes, not yeah. hot takes. The catechism <laughs> is takes on this. Yeah. And then the the richness comes with the student contemplating those takes. So AJ, you could say, what does the Iliad say about wrath? And you could give a take. And it's not the it's not everything that you could say about the book of uh, what you could say about wrath, and the student when they read the Iliad, and if they have this catechism, you know uh, Homer teaches us that wrath is, and then you give this big old long spiel, um, then the, the learning comes where the student either like says yes I agree with that or no I disagree with that, and here's why because wrath is so much more, or and then like then you you've you've given the student a a uh, like a uh, an opponent instead of saying the Iliad's about so the Iliad's about all sorts of uh, the Iliad's so big you can't contain it in one catechism so I'm not going to do a catechism because it's so big that's uh, I feel like that communicates to the students like do what you want with the Iliad go for it it's so that- big that you can have your own opinion about it yeah. whereas if you set up an opponent and you say here's what the Iliad is about mm-hmm. and then you've you've given a bite-sized thing for the student to um, learn from mm-hmm. as a teacher, mm-hmm. and to also wrestle with as maybe an opponent. I don't think the ca- I don't think the good life is the virtues. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's you know, like tell me why. But I'm saying Boethius is about more than just that question. The mm-hmm. Iliad is about more than just one topic. Like, isn't there something unsatisfying that you've had to boil down Paradise Lost, a book you love, to one answer? Sure. What is um, what is healthy love is one of my questions that I ask, yeah. and I say Shakespeare teaches us that healthy love is not hidden in secret, but sanctified by being declared to God yeah, and to the, the church. Board, yeah. So, is that everything Shakespeare says about Romeo? Is that everything Shakespeare says about love? No, but the lesson that we're going to be talking about is a healthy love versus an unhealthy love. And with Romeo and Juliet, one component of unhealthy love is secrecy. Mm-hmm. Is that the only component? Of course not. Um, but it gives the student enough of the bite size thing. And it gives them an example of the types of conclusions that you should be drawing from these books. Mm. But just to say, because this isn't exhaustive or because this isn't sufficient, we're not going to memorize it. I think just opens up the student to saying like, well then, then what's worth knowing? Or what is worth memorizing? Mm. Um, um, I'm taking it the other way to say that there are so many things worth memorizing that what will connect with the student in their first interaction with the book, I don't know. Part of what you're saying is that there are deep truths that um, you want to make sure that they get from the book, but what will actually impact them mm-hmm. may not necessarily be what you think is the deep truth. Mm-hmm. I don't want to move too much into relativism, but I'm just saying that like these are great books because they contain m- many, many themes inside of them, and they will latch onto different themes. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. That the thing that's important to them might be different than the thing that you think is important. Mm-hmm. Is that difference okay? I think so. Yeah. 
Um, but you need to train the student to be able to generate those themes themselves. And, um, and I think the catechism should be disproportionately weighed on memorizing passages from the text itself than maybe the teacher's conclusions about the text. And this yep. is maybe something that, I've, that I haven't done well enough in my catechism, uh, that we have less textual memorization and more me making summative statements about things. Mm. Mm, that's funny, because when you said, you know, what does the Iliad teach about wrath? The place I went was when Achilles says it, you know, burns in the chest and storms in the chest and blinds like smoke. Mm -hmm. And I can only think that it rots, you know, it's a, it's a draft that rots the vessel, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so actual quotes from the Iliad. The, the, you know, swarms in the chest and blinds like smoke. That's, those are actually, it's, you know, sweet, like, mm -hmm. uh, streams of dripping streams of honey. There's a few things mm -hmm. in there that I would put directly from Achilles about his own yeah. wrath. Yeah. And then the funny thing is it, it blinds him again moments later and he just redirects it. Mm -hmm. And then it, you know, it just rots the man from the inside. So are there texts that you all require them to memorize for recitations? Like, mm -hmm. could that fit in to the well, catechism? The thing is the catechism for me has replaced your recitation, my recitations because they end up doing, it. I have one recitation, two recitations that they do. And one is the prologue to Canterbury tales. Cause that's just a fun classical tradition that every student has ever done in the history of English literature right. is memorize one that April with his short Sota. And making um, them feel like fools on the first day. You've talked yeah, about that before. I've talked about that before too. Right. Not fools. That levels the playing field. Yeah. That's what um, I mean. Yes. Anyway. So that, so that's catechisms and he has a more of a full throated defense of it that you can read in the book. Um, um, and then the second thing is, is that he had an experience of grading tests. And I want to read this in full because I've had the exact same experience and had the exact same, not, not the exact same conclusion, um, but uh, similar conclusions. So on page 79, he says, I recall many years ago sitting down to grade a stack of papers one evening and finding myself quite literally in tears after half an hour because I was so bored with what I was reading and I had more than 40 essays left to read. Can I get, have you had this experience at Hamburg? Yes. Oh, yes, we all have. <laughs> yes, I've certainly had this experience. This was hardly the first time I had cried real tears in frustration with the banality of student <laughs> writing. However, on this particular evening, it struck me that I, that I was entirely to blame for mm. my own suffering. It was I, in fact, who had written a very dull essay prompt, and it was only fair that the, the essays returned to me were also dull. The test prompt in question had been written with an embarrassing haste. It was probably something like, some people claim that <laughs> Satan is the real hero of Paradise Lost. Argue against this claim and use three separate citations from the book to prove your thesis. I may have required as many as 1,000 words to satisfy this flaccid, lifeless query. Such questions are scarcely better than asking for the name of the demon who built Panemonium. Moloch. Thank you. <laughs> While I did not want students to merely supply names or dates, I was basically asking them to recapitulate several lectures I had already given in class. Um, while I offered everyone the use of their books, I was asking them to take a cursory glance in the margins and find the passages wherein we had discussed the question of Satan being the hero. The prompt was meant to reward students who had taken copious notes and to chastise those who hadn't, even though there was nothing necessarily virtuous about taking many notes. Even a very wicked person could have completed the assignment without ever needing to second-guess his own boredom with virtue. If a very wicked person could do very well on a theology exam or a philosophy quiz, the person who wrote the quiz is not likely teaching virtue, but facts. Facts have no moral weight." I've had the same thought while grading these sorts of things. And then the question is, well, gosh darn it, what on earth do can you do otherwise? Didn't you change your final exam? I have, but I'm still even not all that satisfied with it. But I have a, a 
a quote that comes from Epictetus that has been my like guiding quote of thinking about assessment. And this book has been very helpful uh, for this this assessment movement, which is happening in classical schools, the, the, the rethinking of how we assess for virtue. And the quote is this, it's from Epictetus. And Epictetus says, for even sheep do not vomit up their grass and show the shepherds how much they have eaten. But when they have internally digested the pasture, they produce externally wool and milk. This has been my like metaphor that I have used to try to think of how I can make create assignments that um, create the that sort of uh, uh, incentivize the kinds of things we want. The, cult the cultivation of virtuous character, the love of God, the love of man, and these sorts of things. Whereas most of our assignments are, please barf up and show me that you've eaten what I've given you. Yep. And so, like, you know, like, basically re recapitulate or re restate my lecture on virtue that we talked about when we did book four, lines 14 through 37. And then they do, and then... I'm bored because it's just variations on how well they could regurgitate it. But then, but the, the principle is, no, you want, if they've ingested something good, it should produce the natural effects in the human person of what you want. Yep. And so, um, this is, I'm going to read to you this in full. And this is his test that he has given on Dante's Divine Comedy. And... Um, I don't feel like it's bad to read it from the book in full, even though it's a page, because he's also wrote an article about this. But this is an example. Every kid in his class is like, huzzah! Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is sort of the example of the attempt to try to create an assignment that is incentivizing this kind of character virtue formation as opposed to vomiting and showing me the grass you've eaten. So here's one, the test. This is on the comedy. Part one, the problem. Imagine, for a moment, that you have a friend at this school you have known since second grade. Let us call him Mark. In elementary school, you played together. Then you learned to ride bicycles together. Then you were in Boy Scouts together. However, during sophomore year, Mark has begun to struggle while you have not. High school sophomores are closer to college applications than they are to middle school, and something clicks in the back of your head during the summer between freshman year and sophomore year, which clues you in to this sobering fact. Quite a lot changes in the summer before sophomore year. Uh, it is this summer in which many students get their first real jobs, the kind of jobs where taxes are taken out of every paycheck. Getting a job and having a little more money in your pocket changes you. You begin depending on your parents less, asking your parents for less, going out more, and dressing yourself in a manner more to your taste. There are a great many things about which your parents have said, when you get a job, you can do that, and now you have a job. Let us say that when you come back to school next year, sophomore year, Mark is really still stuck in freshman year. Nothing happened to him over the summer. Nothing clicked for him. He didn't get a job. He has not yet figured out that he is closer to adulthood than childhood. And he has not caught a vision of why adulthood is preferable. He begins the year still behaving as though all the same jokes and gags, which had purchasing power in eighth grade, are still viable currency. He is incapable of taking anything seriously at all. He makes a laugh of everything. He could have gotten a job over the summer, but his parents did not make him do so, and thus he wasted his time playing Fortnite all day. He has not purchased himself clothes that he likes, he is uninterested in the clothes he is given to wear, and so he does not take much care to look presentable. When he told jokes back in eighth grade which disgusted girls, he got respect from the other boys, including you. But now Mark is like kryptonite to girls, and girls scatter when he appears, which means none of the guys want anything to do with him anymore. 
He either still looks for high fives, he still looks for high fives when he fails a test, but no one appreciates his rebel soul any longer. The problem is not merely one of appearances, for Mark is still telling dead baby jokes, harassing girls and mocking the Indian janitor's accent. While you are still young, you have seen human beings fail to become adults. You have an uncle who is 41, but who never really became an adult. He is an embarrassment to the family. Being an adult is like being a policeman. You can try to become a policeman and fail. You can similarly fail to become an adult. Nothing changes for Mark over the course of, school, of the school year, and by the time May rolls around, you have begun to wonder how failed adults get started on the road to failure. Probably, you suppose, by living like my idiot friend Mark. What you really want to do is take Mark aside and say, what's wrong with you? But who are you to talk that way? You're only 15. What do you know? Besides, sometimes you still laugh at his jokes. But then one day a week before school, the school year ends, Mark asks if the two of you can sit together at lunch, and the ridiculous grin and funny voice he always uses are gone, and he sounds like a real person, maybe even a wounded person. At lunch, Mark talks straight with you. He opens the conversation by soberly saying, look, this year hasn't been great for me. No one likes me anymore. No one ever wants to sit by me. No one ever texts me back. Only two people came with me to the movies on my birthday, and I invited 20 people. Because the truth is often shameful, you begin to worry that maybe you should tell Mark a few lies so that the situation will feel less awkward. But you don't. Mark keeps talking. And I get it. Something is wrong with me. I feel stupid. Not stupid, but like a little kid. I feel like I'm stuck in eighth grade. Like growing up isn't happening to me. I want to grow up. I want to have opinions about college and all that. But look, do you think I'm shallow? And as opposed to lying to Mark or downplaying his concern, you say, yes, Mark, I do think you're shallow. Mark is not angry. He is relieved that someone has spoken the truth to him, because when people speak the truth, there is necessarily hope as well. Mark asks, how do you become not shallow? And then part two of the test talks about um, Dante and, how, and, and Dante's journey from the beginning of the comedy to the end of the comedy. And I won't read that whole thing because I want you to go buy this book. And then the, the part three is in the prompt. So after using all you have gleaned from Dante in our time studying the comedy, advise your friend Mark on how not to be a shallow person. The essay should be a thousand words long and written in the first person. And then Gibbs goes on to say that mediocre essays just sort of say, like, they sort of say, well, Mark, do you remember reading the Divine Comedy? And then recapitulating <laughs> some sort of banal thing in class. And he right. says those are crappy essays. But he says the really good ones are those who are speaking as if they are trying to be Dante themselves. And they're trying... Um, um, they address Mark's shallowness with a discussion of the major themes of the poem, knowledge, desire, the will, and rightly ordered loves. Such advice was not really about Dante, but from Dante, or the student's best imitation of him. So then, the, so then even though you've spent, if you did this catechism on wrath, if you then couple it with some sort of assignment at the end where you make the problem of wrath real to the student, and then you uh, ask like, uh, based, uh, based of all of our conversations and what uh, Homer says about, you know, what wrath does, the blinding of the person, how would you advise your wrathful friend Mark or whatever, right? Like, that's sort of what he's getting at. And I mean, hot dang, would those papers be way more fun to grade. Seriously. Then give oh, me the, so much more fun. Then give <laughs> oh me gosh. the major theme of, 
of your summer reading, which is embarrassingly the first prompt that I did this year. Yep. Uh, and I'm like, well, I don't want to read that. <laughs> um, but I'm but I'm going to. But but then like so trying to get the assignments to have this kind of currency. I mean, like you do well in that assignment if you can if you have understood the material so i mean that's sort of what he's getting at by this kind of material and then coincidentally the students will never forget that test right because it's so uh tangible right it's real life and and like i once read that prompt because uh josh uh joshua gibbs posted it on a cersei blog just a one-off blog and i read that to one of my students and i student come up and he's like i i'm mark Hmm. i think i'm mark I need to go read the Divine Comedy again. I was like, oh, that's cool, awesome. go for it. You yeah. know, like, there, because that's real. There is this fear of people are growing up more than me. People are getting, or people seem to be doing different, or it's, yeah, that, that fear that, like, the game, that people are, are getting ahead of you or, or whatever, that are, are more maturing, that does happen in sophomore year, for example. Anyway, sure. that's the book, something they will not forget. There's a whole lot of richness and good things in there. I highly suggest that you go and buy it um, so that, and then if you are a teacher, um, it requires a certain amount of bravery right. to like try to implement these kinds of practices in the class. And hopefully you work at an institution, and I know that we do, um, where that kind of bravery is encouraged. Um, so, uh, I mean, figuring, cracking that nut is way more exciting than, than like um, those sort of banal uh, prompts, those crappy prompts that produce crappy essays. And that's something that I know that I'm, that I'm like trying to, actively work on myself well, so thanks a bunch i gotta change my whole thing i know we all need to change our whole thing <laughs> so classes. heck with you gibbs thanks wow. for nothing it's a great book i don't appreciate this at all yeah. uh, i'm still curious about the rubric you use to grade if you don't use a, yeah yeah a strict rubric but this is the conversation for another time we're just about out of time so mm-hmm. this has been classical stuff you should know you can email us at classical stuff at veritasacademy.net Check out our website for all the back episodes that are slowly rolling off the old iTunes. Uh, You can see those at classicalstuff.net. We tweet and retweet at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And we are always in the mood for more emails. We answer them when we can. It's pretty busy. We got a backlog right now. We got a backlog right now for sure. Um, We need to somehow divvy up that responsibility, but we'll figure that out. That's on our end, but please keep sending them. We love hearing from you guys. We do this all for you. So, well, I mean, I guess we have some fun. Too. I'm very, no, I, yeah, I, I'm doing this It's for mostly me. for me, yeah. All right, so you you guys are an afterthought. Okay. And with that thought, well, I'll let you go. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Bye.